Hi, everybody. Welcome to this podcast from Cambridge Health Tech Institute for TCGC, the Clinical Genome Conference, which runs June 10th through the 12th in San Francisco, California. I'm Ann Wynn, associate producer. Today, we have one of our keynote speakers from the session working with the payer process, Dr. John Pfeiffer, Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Pathology, Professor of Pathology and Immunology, and Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Washington University School of Medicine. John, thanks so much for giving us your time today. What are your current activities at Washington University, and what kind of environment and resources do you have there for your research? So Washington University, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is a large tertiary care academic medical center. And so consistent with that, we have a tripartite mission here at WashU with respect to all of our activities, but also with respect to our clinical next-generation sequencing that we perform. We do next-generation sequencing to support patient care, to optimize patient outcomes. We also do it in Um, the context of the educational activities that we have for training for our medical students as well as our residents and fellows. And then the third reason that we do next-generation sequencing is in support of the research activities here at the Medical Center, both uh, basic science research activities as well as translational and purely clinical trials type studies. Now, having said that, about we started planning about five years ago and went live about two and a half years ago with a clinical next-generation sequencing menu of tests. The first test that we offered was uh, a test that was focused on cancer, um, providing insight as to targeted therapies. We've recently rolled out a couple of other tests that have to do with more constitutional disease testing. But regardless of the panel, we have set up a model in which we are a reference laboratory where our name is Genomics and Pathology Services at Washington University in St. Louis. And our model is as an academic reference lab, uh, not only to serve our hospital and our healthcare system, but also to serve as a regional and a national reference lab. And the resources then that we have are those that were provided by the Department of Pathology and our partner in this, the Department of Genetics. And so we set up a lab that is focused on the use of next-generation sequencing technologies, not so much in the patient care setting to answer the question, what can we do, but more to answer the question, what should we be doing to enhance patient care? And so we set up a model where, out of the gate, that we wanted our testing to be reimbursable and that our laboratory would be able to operate essentially in the black based on the reimbursement we got from private insurance and governmental payers. What that means is we do not have institutional support. We have institutional support in terms of space and infrastructure, but our institution did not give us millions of dollars to set up the laboratory, neither did our hospital or health system. And similarly, we don't have a pool of money from venture philanthropy or venture capital. Everything that we've done was set up within resources that exist within the Department of Pathology and the Department of Genetics. So, That necessarily, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, over the remainder of the interview, that necessarily has impacted the types of um, panels that we offer and the type of testing that we do because, again, since we set up a lab that its existence is required on reimbursement, we've had to tailor the testing we do to those sweet spots where we know that we will get reimbursed by payers. What factors have often prevented payers from readily reimbursing clinical NGS testing by labs, and how have reimbursement models for labs evolved over time from before next-generation sequencing through now? That's a great question. The fundamental fact that has to be recognized in all of this is that insurance companies are in the business of paying for procedures, testing, and equipment that is necessary for the treatment of a specific condition or disease in a person who holds their policy. There's a very discrete boundary around what insurance companies, whether they're governmental, whether they're in private payers, what they're willing to pay because they do not view that their role in the healthcare enterprise is supporting basic science or even clinical research. So insurance companies have historically, and this goes back long before I even got into medicine, is that they have focused on providing payment for testing or 
services or procedures that directly impact patient care that are medically necessary, but not that are experimental or investigational. And so one of the things that insurance companies that we knew when we set up our lab is they would ask us to demonstrate that the testing that we performed is a community standard and that there is a well-established evidence-based literature to show that the testing is useful for diagnosis therapy or improving outcome and things like that. So we knew when we set up our lab, and this is, as I've said before, this is established precedent, that the same parameters that insurance companies were dealing with 15 or 20 years ago before the advent of any molecular testing in the clinical lab, and then when they applied those criteria to PCR-based testing and Sanger sequencing, et cetera, that they have a very tight focus on testing that is useful for direct patient care. So one of the things that we recognized that would prevent payers from reimbursing for testing then is the lack of a well-established medical literature, the lack of papers that you could point to that show that it proves patient outcome, or the lack of widespread use that demonstrates it's actually part of standard of care. So we were very aware of this when we started our testing, and so our initial approach was on a smaller panel. Our version one of our panel was exactly 25 genes, and all of those genes were genes that provided what we call actionable intelligence that could be used by an oncologist to direct the patient's care. There were a couple other genes on there that provided prognostic information, and there were a couple other genes that modified a response to therapy. But we were very tightly focused on sequencing genes that insurance companies were already in the habit of reimbursing for. And so we were able to avoid an argument within, or not an argument, a discussion with the insurance payers about, for example, KRAS. Well, they were already paying for KRAS sequence analysis, so we simply said, you're paying for it already. Do you really care whether we're using Sanger sequencing or next-generation sequencing? What we avoided by having such a small panel out of the gate is a conversation where we were trying to convince uh, payers that the 150 or 250 genes or 450 genes that we were sequencing were actually medically necessary because we knew the standard of evidence that they would require and that the medical literature just wouldn't support that. Furthermore, it's important to understand that these insurance payers, they're very sophisticated, they're very smart, and they read the literature just like physicians do. And so they're very aware that there are, and I'm speaking generally, maybe only 25 targeted therapies out there. And so it's a little hard to make an argument if there are only 25 targeted therapies that you need to sequence 150 or 450 genes. Furthermore, the insurance companies note that a lot of the drugs that are in clinical trials are second and third generation agents. They're not necessarily targeting new molecules. And so, again, that it's hard to make an argument for a panel of 150 or 450 genes or even a whole exome. And so that history of reimbursement models from insurance companies from the outset didn't limit but drove the design of our panel and the way that we approached presenting it to payers. And I'll say as an aside that actually our oncologists welcomed a smaller panel because they understood that it was many times of marginal utility to know the mutational status of another 400 genes if there were no drugs to target those genes and if they weren't going to base therapy on that knowledge. And what will be the main theme of your keynote presentation at TCGC on June 10th? And what will be the significance to your audience? I think the main theme of my presentation will be essentially keep up the good work. Everything that we do in a clinical setting, of course, relies on basic science that has been done in the field of genomic research. That basic science has informed us of what genes and what mutations in those genes or what sequence alterations 
are targets of specific therapy or can predict prognosis. And similarly, it is much easier to simply use an already developed kit to do sequencing when it's clinically actionable that it can save a lot of time and money rather than having to develop an in-house LDT. So that will be the first theme is it's all that hard work that these groups have done that have actually enabled the transition of next-generation sequencing into direct clinical utility. I think the second message will be to remind both the basic science researchers as well as the diagnostic kit developers of what I basically said about the factors that they come into play when you're trying to get reimbursed for the testing. Again, the reality here is that if clinical labs are going to do this testing, they have to get reimbursed for it, and the reimbursement paradigms are pretty narrow. And so the people who develop diagnostic kits need to be flexible and understand that a lab that can test for half a dozen or a dozen mutations with one kit is more likely to purchase that kit than a kit that only sequences one gene at a time or one hotspot at a time because there are economies of, of scale there. And similarly, I think to the, if you will, the basic science genomic research groups that they have a lot of fantastic information. And I, as an academic, you know, pathologist, am very interested in the, the fantastic discoveries. But when I put on my other hat about clinical testing, all of that stuff is very interesting. But until a very clear use case scenario is developed based on outcomes, based on response to therapy, or as published, I should say, as published in the medical literature, it's going to be very difficult for laboratories to pick up in the testing or the analysis of that gene in routine clinical care because they, quite frankly, won't get reimbursed to do the testing. Great. John, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and observations today. These were some very highly useful insights. Well, it's my pleasure. That was Dr. John Pfeiffer of Washington University School of Medicine. He'll be speaking as a keynote at the upcoming TCGC, the Clinical Genome Conference, taking place June 10th through the 12th in San Francisco. If you'd like to hear him in person, go to www.clinicalgenomeconference.com for registration information and enter the key code PODCAST. I'm Ann Wynn. Thank you for listening.